you know, being autistic really wasn't the problem for me in my career. It was being a woman. But I had to make myself really good at what I did. And I had a very strong urge to prove to the world I was not stupid when I was in my 20s. This is Taking Flight, a show about people redefining disability by challenging the world we live in. I'm Perry LaRock, and on today's episode, we're going to talk about cows and autism. And who else could that be with other than the iconic Dr. Temple Grandin? Not many people can claim to be pioneers in two fields, and certainly not in two fields as seemingly different as bovines and autism. However, the lessons learned through empathy, humanity, and courage throughout an illustrious career often bleed through the specific topic of conversation. With a spot on the 2010 Time 100 list of the most influential people, a double helix medal, multiple honorary degrees from around the world, inductee into the Hall of Great Westerners of the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum, member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, inductee into the National Women's Hall of Fame, author of dozens of scientific journal articles in animal sciences and books on autism and disability, a TED Talk, and an Emmy and a Golden Globe award-winning movie of her own name, and one very starstruck, humbled, and honored podcast host. Here's my conversation with Dr. Temple Grandin. You know, I did about an hour and a half interview with with Temple, which was which was fascinating. You know, it was quite the experience for me, for someone who has known about her since I was a kid, being in my industry. And I sent her an email and said, would you talk with me for a little bit? And I got a phone call from her. <laughs> and so I picked up the phone. She goes, hello, this is Temple Grandin. And I, I you know, for me, it was a little bit of a freak out moment. Um to have her just on the phone. And I, I really did see the humanity in her and um, she was a pleasure to talk with and she's funny and um, she's certainly smart. Yes, very smart. Meet Jim Uhl. Jim recognized Temple's unique capabilities and immediately hired her in the 70s. They traveled the country together and became dear friends. Artistic, great, great eye for camera work took sensitive, beautiful pictures of kids with cattle livestock, helped teach kids how to groom their their calf or their horse or whatever. It wasn't just cattle. She knows about hogs and and sheep and and horses and the whole whole spectrum. But I got a kick out of when she'd go to the Yuma County Fair and help the kids groom their their animals to show them properly. It, 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 It puts a lump in my throat. Well, you know, I think that coming in as a young person, you want to come into the field and save people's lives. And yeah, well, make that's them, right. Of course you want to. Yeah. That. And you want to make them better, right? Yeah. And you want to fix problems. And so, you know, some of your early lessons about different than rather than less than and thinking of people as people first and all of those pieces just back in the... Well, the other thing is that what I'm seeing now is a lot of um, students with a label, they aren't getting taught basic skills. Right. And I just got a book, the review from a guy who works at Microsoft for years. He had an upbringing a lot like mine. Well, learning how to work, for example, he worked at a convenience store when he was a teen. I mean, so he learned how to work. Well, and then the other thing I'm finding is because they don't understand money. I learned that from my allowance. I'm, and I learned I could buy five comics with 50 cents. But if I wanted a 69-cent airplane, I had to save for two weeks. I learned that at seven and eight years old. And that's not complicated stuff to do. That's just how kids were raised in the 50s. Yep. 
And, you know, one of the things that we ran into with, with the work I do at Mansfield Hall, and all of our students are somewhere on that continuum that you talk about, whether it's autism or Asperger's or just quirky, nice kids, we were having a hard time finding them internships. And, and we found that to be an area, and I don't know if you see this in Colorado, but we found that to be an area of discrimination that first. Well, there's a certain that- amount of discrimination. One, I'll tell you what I learned to do. I just sold my work. I never disclosed being a woman in the seventies in a man's industry was a much bigger barrier. I would just lay the drawings out on the table, show them the pictures, show them the trade magazine articles and let the work sell itself. Now I have some accommodations I need. I didn't even know they were called accommodations, but when I had to run a piece of equipment, I made sure I had a checklist. That's easy. And I would always in the project meeting, get very clear what the, what the parameters of the things I had to design. I said, I'll do the design, but I need to get some cost parameters. Uh, can I have the field across the street? That land belong to you? Because I want it. Right. I rewatched the movie last night just because I love it anyway. And I thought, well, this will be a good, exciting thing to do before I get to actually meet you in person. And so it just still blows my mind. And the one thing that I just, and you just said it, you know, you were coming up in an era where autism wasn't even a very popular diagnosis or much understood at all. No, nobody, nobody even knew what it was in the beginning. And at some point in the movie, I was watching it and I was thinking, well, wait a minute, what, what's more difficult, being a woman or having autism at this point? I mean, you were out there with all those men. The woman, in terms of career, woman was a much bigger barrier. They put bull testicles on my car, just like it showed in the movie. That happened. And I was kicked out of Scottsdale Feed Yard. That happened. And the autism was a minor problem. Maybe the autism helped me because I, you know, really went after things, you know, like going up and getting that editor's card. But the thing I learned really early on, you just show the work off. The interview for me was laying the work out on the table. And I can show you some of um, my thinking in pictures book. I've got my, some of my drawings in there. And I'd have them on big sheets of paper and just lay them out on the on the for people to look at. And here's some of my drawings. And I would just um, lay those out, show them to people. And that's all I had to do. Here's Jim Ool again. So the first project I did with her was in about 1975. Uh, I wanted to build livestock facilities. And a fella told me that there was a, a very uh, unique woman that was working for Corral Industries, but had been at ASU's School of Construction. And she knew a lot about uh, livestock handling facilities and knew a lot about handling cattle. And he had a lot of uh, good things to say about her. So I, I got her number and... Uh, she only lived five or six miles from where I lived, and it just so happened. And I called her, and she took the call, but was quite reluctant to. It wasn't, oh, yeah, sure, I'm happy to meet. So I, you know, was patient and persevered. And either on the first or second or third call, she agreed to meet me at a restaurant. And she had been working at a slaughterhouse in Phoenix here. And to learn how to stun cattle and et cetera, et cetera. And I guess make money and handle cattle. And that is pretty bloody dirty work. Okay. And she came in the restaurant dressed like that uh-huh. with stuff in her hair and everything. And, but that I wasn't, it didn't have any effect on me. So anyway, 
we got to talking and she was cautious and wondered what in the hell I wanted, I'm sure. And so that was my first meeting with her. And I, I got to know her a little bit. So that was the first meeting. So you said that was around 75. I mean, there wasn't a lot known about autism. I mean, were you aware of the specific disability at that time? I mean, had you interacted with people with a similar profile like that before? Or was she sort of the first person you had come into contact with that had that type of disability? Well, I wasn't particularly aware that Temple had a disability. Yeah. I'm not particularly aware with that now. I don't, I've been probably around Temple about as much as anybody there was at least in the beginning years, and I'm not sure that I feel that way, although I have no no technical training or anything. I mean, uh, I've been around a lot of very unique people, and Temple certainly being one of the most interesting, creative, and valued that I have, have met. But I had heard the word, I was vaguely aware, I'm not in the, that field, and I was interested in her, there was nothing about her that caused me to be less than interested. I was a little shocked at her, her mannerisms and her dress in a restaurant setting like that. But beyond that, you just didn't, you don't see her as someone who has a disability. No, actually, I see her uh, just the opposite. I, I saw her then as I see her now and over the many, many jobs we did all over the United States as a person with uh, unbelievable talent, talents that are hard to get. What did you think of the movie? I'm assuming you've seen it. I, I, uh, I, I honestly have not seen it. You haven't? No. Oh, what is the name of it? Temple Grandin. Claire Danes, who I don't know if you know who Claire Danes is, but she's a pretty famous actress, plays Temple. And she I think she was nominated for a Golden Globe for it. Well, that's great. Well, I'll make sure that my wife and I uh, pull yeah, you'll get a kick out of it. I'm sure it's it's good. Uh, you're probably in it. <laughs> I'm an academic, so the one of the first things I did, <laughs> believe it or not, and I hope in this area where my specialty is in disability and autism, I felt like the first thing I should do is understand a little bit more about your work. So I read assessment of stress during handling and transport. Okay, all and right. Yeah, I was just really interested. So I, you know, I grew up in Wisconsin and I'm in Wisconsin right now. So, you know, I've been raised okay. around a fair number of cows. And I think that anybody that uh, has been around a cow knows that they're unusual animals. The things that struck me about the paper that I, I hadn't thought about was just the idea of the novelness and how novelty is can be the biggest amount of fear that any animal has. Well, you see, the thing I've told you know, people with autism, no sudden surprises. The other thing about novelty is if the animal is allowed to voluntarily approach it, then it's attractive. But when you shove it in their face, it's scary. Okay, let's say a student's going back to school. Uh, he needs to know that or she needs to know that, you know, they're going to be um, desk spaced apart, eat lunch at your desk. Let's not have that be a surprise. At what point did you start looking at it and saying, wow, these <laughs> these cows are a lot like humans? Or was it the other way around? These humans are a lot like well, cows. Well, the thing you got to remember, when I first started working with cattle in my 20s, I thought everyone was a visual thinker. I didn't know my thinking was different. And so it was obvious to me to look at what cattle were looking at, like shadows, a coat on a fence, or a vehicle parked near, uh, near something. And 
I didn't really understand why other people didn't seem to see this. And I wasn't, I was practically in my 40s when I really realized the extent of my difference in my thinking. And it was when I talked to a speech therapist at an autism conference, and I asked her, I think about a church steeple, how did it come into your mind? And I was just shocked that the way it came into her mind was just a pointy thing like that. <laughs> in other words, that's all that came into her mind. Where if I say the you know church steeple to me, or maybe factory or some other thing, I see specific ones. People that are visual thinkers will start naming the churches. And there's a reason why I picked this church steeple. You don't own it. And um, you see them when you're driving around when you're in church, you don't see them. And people don't pay that much attention to them. If I ask you about your own dog, yes, people, most people can see that. But I ask you something you don't own. Even I see very specific images. And the person who's a, maybe an art major or something like that, they'll start naming off the churches. They start naming them off as they come up in their mind like PowerPoint slides where the really verbal thinker just gets these two kind of lines like this. I was shocked when the first uh, told me about this. That looked like my church steeple. <laughs> I, had a, I had another question about some things that came out in that paper. And I think the the general one, and this may sound like a dumb question. I mean, I have my own opinions, but why is it important? I mean, why is, I don't want to say just about the humane treatment of animal, because I get that. But there's some sense of the mooing article and the distress. And why is it so important to keep animals? Because I'm sure some of those cowboys were like, they're fine. You know, who cares if they moo? But you recognize that there's a deeper level of distress they were feeling. Why is that important just in general? Well, uh, when, you know, there's certain situations where cows will moo when there's separation distress and take their calves away, they'll moo. Uh, if you pinch them too hard with a restraining chute, they're going to move saying, ouch. And we use that as a measurement uh, to make sure you're not doing really bad handling. They, uh, they can suffer. Animals have the capacity to suffer. They've um, got emotions. Uh, they feel pain. Now there's some things we can't do. Um, make um, computers and things like that. Because there's one fundamental difference between us and the animals is the size of the cortex. We have a computer sitting up here on top way bigger than any animal has got in terms of processor power. But when it comes to emotions and a lot of other stuff, um, all mammals are pretty much the same. Have you studied animals in the wild? Like, you know, how does a cow in captivity or a domesticated cow experience fear? Are they anticipating their death? Do they know where that they're... No, they don't know they're going to die. I, that, I had to answer that question when I first started is do they know they're going to get slaughtered? So I'd go to the Swift plant in Arizona, and then I'd go out to a local feed yard, and I found that they behaved the same way going in the vaccinating chute as they did going into the Swift plant. In fact, the Swift plant only had a five-foot, six-inch fence uh, that the cattle were very capable of jumping out, and 99.999% never did. Yeah. One of the things that I was curious about was one of the quotes, I think it was just on your Wikipedia page, but it's not an uncommon quote for someone on the autism spectrum the part of other people that has emotional relationships is not part of me? Well, I'm very logic driven. You see, I think a brain can be more emotional or a brain can be more cognitive or thinking. You see, to, be, to do complicated social behavior, it eats up a ton of processor space. So a little bit of an autistic trait would give someone advantage, maybe a really good Silicon Valley engineer. You know, there's some people running some very successful companies. You know, you can argue about whether or not they're autistic, but autism is a continuous trait. 
at which point you slap a label on it when the slightly geeky become autistic. And I get really excited about really interesting things to do, too. That that turns me on. Or something that's really innovative, really clever and innovative. That uh, that will turn me on. But uh, we need people to know how to just do stuff. We wouldn't have any computers. We wouldn't have any electricity. Tesla, who invented the power plant, was probably autistic. Right. Einstein. Einstein. Uh, no, you see, people argue about Einstein. Well, let's just look at the facts. There was no speech until age three. He had delayed speech. In most school systems today, the behaviors he had, he would have had an autism label slapped on him. You see, the problem is it's not a precise diagnosis like COVID, where you use the right test, you can absolutely say you have it or you don't. Right. When you're working with cattle, is it empathy? Well, I can um, visualize, you know, sort of how an animal's going to you know, perceive different things. And one of the big things I've worked on, okay, you're using a restraining chute to hold an animal for vaccination. Um, I've really, you know, said, hey, man, they move when you squeeze them. It's too tight. You've got to adjust the hydraulics. You know, that that's absolutely not okay. Yeah. So your idea is that if you do it right, it's more humane than what? Well, you got to do it right. I want to emphasize that. And one of the things I worked on, you know, I worked on implementing McDonald's audits back in 1999. That was really interesting. Because um, when they, McDonald's first got faced with having to deal with animal welfare, it's all, let's just delegate it to the lawyers and to the public relations department. And then I took high-level vice presidents out on their first trips. And when they saw some bad stuff, they go, whoa, it was just like undercover boss. There's some stuff here that we have got to fix. And it was no longer an abstraction. You see, that's why it's so important in any corporation for managers to get out of the office and find out what's going on the front line. Just the other day, I was being asked about, you know, human rights issues with various industries. Well, and there's some bad stuff, fishing, you know, in, in other countries. Um, yeah, they better get out there and find out what's actually going on on the front line. And because if it's just a spreadsheet, they can make decisions that are really unethical. Does the quality of meat differ based on how humane an animal is treated? Yes. Um, if you get cattle all excited and stressed out and fearful right before slaughter in beef, you will get tougher meat. There's actually a paper from Robin Warner in Australia on that. And in pigs, you'll get pale, soft, watery meat. And one of my former students, Lily Calloway Edwards, has you know, done a paper on that. Wow. Yeah, it does affect the quality of the meat. That is really interesting. Yeah, because, you know, that's the, what are the cows over in Japan? The, the wagyu. Yeah. No, don't they massage those animals? Isn't that? Well, yeah, that would just be a few specialized ones that the others that they raised without being massaged. But yeah, some of the Japanese beef has a very high level of marbling. So we don't do a lot of massaging here. <laughs> the other thing I was just curious about is because it's your field. Is there something in the field in terms of the cattle piece that is the most interesting thing you've learned or the most interesting fact about Cows or well, I'm really interested in animal visual perception. I've got a student right now that's doing a project on how horses perceive novel objects, and she used a children's plastic play set. And, well, you know, it's about four foot by four foot by four foot in size, has a slide and a swing on it. Walk the horse by it, really afraid of it in the beginning, then um, get them used to it, walking them by it, walking by it. Then you rotate the play set and almost becomes a totally new object, huh? Now, these were experiments well done at a walk, but when you rotated that play set, let's say you're galloping the horse towards it, you probably get dumped off. 
But think about it. This stapler, imagine it was a lot bigger. It looks different oriented this way than oriented this way. And that's why it's really important when you're training horses to show them all sides of something. You see, because it's a visual memory. You see, when you have a verbal memory, you're going to say, that's just a kid's play set. Well, the horse doesn't even know it's a play set. These horses never seen one before. They know what it was. But when it was rotated and that slide sticking out in the other direction, it almost became a totally new object. Wasn't quite as scary because it still had some of the same features it had before. But one of my other students um, had one of these huge hat boxes that you keep a cowboy hat in. And she had gotten on her horse with that thing. She had set it on the ground around her horse. I mean, that horse had seen that hat box, I mean, I don't know, 50 times or something. And one day she set that hat box on a picnic table. And it somehow in the horse's brain turned into something else and the horse went ballistic. Well, it looked like something different sitting on the picnic table because it's purely a visual memory. You see, they're not thinking the horses and go, well, that's just a hat box. You see, we, we have a, an additional layer of processing that they don't have. No right. Does that apply to people with autism or, or your autism characteristics? Well, I am a visual thinker. Now, right. let's talk about some of the different kinds of minds. In the Autistic Brain book, I discussed that there's three kinds of specialized thought in autism. Object visualizer like me, who thinks in pictures, which is shown very clearly in HBO movie. Then you have your more mathematical mind. These are going to be a programmers. This is what's called the visual spatial mind. And they're more mathematical. They think in patterns. And the third type is going to be word thinker. These are the individuals that like history. They like a lot of facts and things about words. There's a saying in psychiatry about personality disorders, if one, then all. Do you feel like those are pretty discrete brains? Or do you think that someone with autism shares a little piece of each? Well, the thing on the, they've done research on these different kinds of thinking and just people they just got like out of art departments and out of engineering departments of universities. And there definitely are two kinds of visual thinking. There's the object visualizer like me, describing thinking in pictures, who thinks in pictures. And then there's a mathematical mind. And it's more like patterns, graphs, mathematics, programming. It's a different kind of thought, and it's been verified in the scientific literature, and some of that is in the autistic brain, which was published in 2013, and then I've researched the literature, and there's a lot more literature now, and research that supports that idea, that object visualization and mathematical visual spatial thinking are two different things. Now, you're going to have some people that are mixtures of both, but you're never going to find a person who's a super good object visualizer like me who's super good at math, and one of the things with me is I absolutely couldn't do algebra. And thank goodness in 67, they wasn't required because I wanted originally to be a biomedical engineer and I couldn't do the math. I had to go into a field where I didn't have to have all that math. I've done tons of engineering work. And there's a place for visual thinkers in engineering things because there's been big mistakes made like the Fukushima nuclear power plant. Well, it's not a really good idea when you live next to the sea to not have watertight doors. Right. Yeah. You see, when they calc- when the engineers calculate risk, I'm just going, I see the water coming over the seawall. I know what's going to happen <laughs> when those doors bust out. Yes. And your emergency cooling pump that has an electric motor doesn't work anymore. In the seawater. <laughs> In the seawater. And I don't know how to design a nuclear reactor. 
but you need people to make like me screaming. You got to put watertight doors in there and sump pumps and right because I'm going to get leakage from some of the doors, and I got to keep that stuff dry. What did you see her as her specific talents? Well, she's got many talents. Okay, one is she ha- is is quite artistic, in my opinion. Uh, her photography, I remember uh, she used to do some photography of livestock. And one picture she had was a calf drinking out of a pool in the mountains. And the mountains were reflected in the pool. That was one. Uh, one is an unbelievable work ethic, which I admired greatly. A tremendous endurance. You just couldn't tire her out. And she worked, when we were on our job, she worked right with the crew. She didn't just stand there and point. And she pitched in. And a good heart. Uh, When the boys got hurt, she got to know the crew very, very well over the years. I mean, the superintendent just died last year. She remembered him well. And the last time I talked to him, he asked, how's Temple? I mean, you know, the people never forgot her, especially the people that liked her and recognized her the great value she brought to the things we were trying to do. And I, I'm jumping forward here, Perry, is that at some point early on, I mean, then all the travel was by pickup truck. So there you are in a conventional cab pickup truck for 10, 12 hours driving from here to Oregon or something like that. And you talk about everything and it became, and, and Temple, I, I did not do much of the talking. But I listened to Temple carefully, and um, it became obvious to me that uh, she was studying cattle and livestock, but she was also trying to understand a lot about how the human brain worked. And if she could learn a lot about livestock, it might parallel to what the human mind was doing, and she could help kids that had her problems because she was open to me about problems she had growing up. Very open, just just like you and I are talking. I mean, and I wasn't shocked or, or uh, I just listened. I found her fascinating. Yeah. Let me tell you one other quality that she's got. And I don't know that I've ever heard this. Threat. Temple has unbelievable courage. I'm, I'm telling you that. If there was a crisis or you were in a tight spot and a ship in the heading to nowhere, and something happened and all the navigation went out and everybody was struggling to, to stay alive, she'd be one person you'd want on that lifeboat. Hmm. And she is not intimidated by anything or anybody or any livestock. The livestock, I've seen her jerk a cattle superintendent right out of the saddle, not only physically. They'd say, get down off that hearse, you're doing it wrong, and jump in the saddle and do it herself. You got courage. Now, the people that I know with autism, and I talked to a couple of them yesterday and said I was going to be talking to you today. I mean, you're an icon to them. You know what I mean? Like the, the path that you pay for them is beyond for them. You know what I mean? You're, you're the, one of the biggest celebrities they could think of. And one of my students said, I always say Temple Grandin when someone says, if you could have lunch with anybody, who would it be? And she, she said, I always say Temple Grandin. So she was excited to hear that I was talking to you. My question is, Given the fact that you do have some fan base, right? I mean, you have people who are just, you know, at your talks, there's thousands of people who show up. 
Do you see an increase in uh, the number of students coming into the cattle industry based on your work with autism? There's a lot of students. When I first um, started, there were no women in the cattle industry, except in the offices as secretaries. That's totally changed now. You've got women managing feed yards and, th- and ranches and stuff like that. Now, that's, that has completely changed. And, uh, you know, being autistic really wasn't the problem for me in my career. It was being a woman. But I had to make myself really good at what I did. And I had a very strong urge to prove to the world I was not stupid when I was in my 20s. Those were very happy years for me. And when I think of the 43 years I was in business with myself, I think most about those years, even though we did huge jobs at coast to coast, it was sort of samey, samey, but Temple's jobs were always very fascinating. And I have to say, like my roughneck crew, which was Native American, Hispanic, white, uh, redneck boys uh, from farm backgrounds, they all came to adore her. They they liked her. We all liked her. My son is a lawyer for the Department of Justice and a Marine colonel, and he he was a little boy when she got to know Temple, and of course he likes her. They, we all considered her part of the family. She was part of our team. And the other thing is, my 50s upbringing helped me. Um, you know, we were taught manners. You know, kids sat down at the table, and when I made a mistake and maybe stuck my finger in the mashed potatoes, mother would say, use the fork. She'd give the instruction. That was done with all kids in the 50s. And then learning money. Like I had a little allowance, and I could get five comic books with it, but if I wanted that little more expensive airplane, I had to save for it. That was being taught very, very young. And the other thing I'm seeing now is kids are teenagers. They got an autism label and they're good students and they've never gone shopping. This is ridiculous. They're not learning basic skills. And the other thing is work skills. There's um, grandfathers that come up to me and they discover they're autistic when the grandkids get diagnosed. And granddaddy's had a decent job. He had a paper route at age 11. No, we need to be getting these kids working before they graduate from high school. Now we need to watch the jobs of too much multitasking. That's going to be a problem. Do you think you can over-accommodate a student? Yes, I think you can. I've seen situations where a student came into college thinking it was going to have a one-to-one aid. Well, you're not. The other big problem I see in college is students that don't ask for help soon enough. When I failed my first math quiz, I went to the professor and he tutored me. I was in a small college. And when, I, and when I was in graduate school, I messed up my first statistics quiz. I got tutoring for not, from another graduate student. I did something about it before I trashed the class. I just talked to a student last night. She trashed one of her classes. And I said, why didn't you drop it? You see, they don't do something soon enough about a problem. Now she got a D on her transcript. Well, I think that there's, you know, in the book that I had written, I mean, it addresses the fact that there seems to be this big gap between people who don't know how to do college, right? It's not about that they're not smart enough to do college, it's that they don't know how to do college. And um, one of the things that a good friend of mine always says is that the three most important questions to ask if somebody's ready for college is, do you know when you need help? Okay, I already, I already answered that one. Yeah. Do you know where to get help? And then the third one is, do you know how to use it meaningfully on an ongoing basis? And that if you answer no to any one of those three questions, college is going to be hard. Well, the other problem, you know, they blame executive function for everything. And I think that's a bit of a cop out. 
my, my science teacher got me turned around in high school. I was a rotten student in high school. He, he gave me interesting projects, and then studying became a pathway to the goal of becoming a scientist. That was really important. I was endeared by the relationship you had with your with your mother. Um, I was curious about, it seemed as if, or at least how she's portrayed, and maybe you can talk about her a little bit, that she sort of made you live the different than, not less than, and wanted to accept you for who you were and encouraged you to kind of go in the direction that made the most sense. My mother had a very good sense of how to stretch me, but she always gave some choices. And okay, there's been problems now. Autistic kids don't want to wear masks. I said, well, got to practice with them at home. And there are some choices. You have to wear one, but there's quite a lot of choices. I'm not going to give you a hundred choices, but uh, you can try some of the different kinds. And then you can buy one on Amazon. It's got a cute pattern. Once you figure out what type of mask you tolerate the best. So there's choices. It's stretching just outside the comfort zone. You don't chuck them in the deep end of the pool. I'll tell you what you don't do. You don't take an 18-year-old girl and shove her in a super crazy busy store at Christmas time and all this multitasking. That's going to be setting up a failure because multitasking, that, that's going to be a problem. There's working memory issues. She always encouraged my ability in art, and she encouraged me to do pictures of many different things and use different media. That was always encouraged. Do you give her, for your success, I mean, because, I mean, there's certainly a ton of resilience in your life. Do you- do you give her the credit for getting you on the right path or was it? Well, she, she got me on the right path in the beginning. And then there was Mr. Carlock, my science teacher. And then later on, there was a really good contractor. He was a former Marine Corps captain, Jim Ould. He'd seen some of my drawings and he seeked me out to help him get his construction company started. And he built the uh, dipping vat project that was shown in the movie. And we, for 10 years, we did a whole lot of jobs together. Um, and he kind of put together a diverse team to um, to do the construction work. And that's where, you know, certain people see ability. You know, he saw my drawings and knew that I'd be good at doing these things. One thing that you said before that I had as a theme of the, a lot of the conversations I had is that the, you know, the continuum from, I think you said, geeky to autism, right? And we I've heard it described as quirky to autism. And then where do you make the diagnosis i just i'm curious about that well that's the that's the million dollar question and what the kid see what tends to happen and i've talked to tons and tons of parents is you got the kid that's speech delay and um, autism gets the most services so regardless of the cause of speech delay they put an autism label on them that happens in a lot of states then you have the kid that's diagnosed around eight because he has no friends those are kind of the two patterns i see in terms of public school uh diagnoses and um, you see, in order to get a service, they have to have a diagnosis. And they get insurance, you have to have a diagnosis. So that's pushing it. And the other thing is, over the years, they've broadened the diagnosis. You know, originally, back in the 80s, you had to have speech delay in order to be labeled autistic. Then in the early 90s, the DSM had uh, Asperger's, where it's basically geeky, socially awkward, with no speech delay. And then 2013, they merged everything together. Now you got a big bog hole of a mess going from somebody who ought to run a Silicon Valley company to um, somebody who can't dress themselves and we call it all the same thing. They need very different services. Now, I want to emphasize on the people that are nonverbal. Some of these people can type totally independently and they describe living in a sensory scrambled world, especially with vision being scrambled, uh, and they can't control their movements. 
you see they're stimming the repetitive movement that's done deliberately. And then there's some of these that cannot control the movements. And a really good book on that is How Can I Talk If My Lips Don't Move by Tito Makapadahi. I've met him. He types completely independently. I mean, where do you draw the line between someone getting a diagnosis and not? I mean, that's that's sort of the the area I work in with these college students who are sort of in between, right? You know, some of them. Have- well, that's the problem. It's a judgment thing. You see, it's a continuous trait. It's like height's a continuous trait. When are you going to call somebody short, for example? Would you err on the side of giving someone the diagnosis or not? Well, the thing is, is, is um, I'm seeing sometimes a label holding some kids back where autism becomes their total identity. And the thing is interesting. I've been out to the Silicon Valley, to the big tech companies. I've been to them. And uh, there's estimates that anywhere from 25% to 50%, you know, may have some traits on the spectrum of the programs. And they actively avoid the label. But I think it's a problem when I have eight-year-olds walk up to me and all they want to do is tell me about their autism. I'd rather talk to them about their telescope or, or they're doing robots or they like public speaking or they like, you know, um, some other thing. You know, autism is an important part of who I am, but it's secondary to being a professor and a scientist, a designer. Those things come first. They're getting so far into it that I don't think it's a good thing. There's a lot of discrimination. I heard some very bad things where a guy got denied a pilot's license because he made the mistake of disclosing. Another guy, these are relatively recent. This is the last five years. I uh, lost an outdoor kind of technical job. I can't say what it is for privacy concerns. Been in it for five years, disclosed, and got laid off. So you get, you know, if you're just mildly autistic, I wouldn't disclose to an employer. I would just say something like, I need a quiet place to work. Or um, I don't multitask well. So, or we've got, to, I've got to take this machine apart and clean it. Let me just make myself a pilot's checklist. You know, I disclose those sort of things, but that's it. I had a guest who was blind and he designs websites um, for people who are blind, okay. which is really fascinating. I, I didn't really know. All right. Well, that's good. Yeah. yeah. And one thing he, I said, when did become passionate about being blind and working on this piece of websites? And he said, you know, I wasn't interested in the field of assistive technology at all. I just got so frustrated that there wasn't good services that I switched. And he said, I'd rather be known for someone who's really helped create good software than to known to be someone who's blind. Well, that's right. Create the software comes first. The software comes first. And I think that's the same way that, you know, the tech people think about it. And autistic traits are a true continuum. I, you know, the brain only got so much processor space. So what do I allocate it to? Social, emotional? or write code. There's a trade-off there. There's a really interesting paper called Genomic Trade-Offs, where autism and schizophrenia, the steep price for a human brain, because the same genetics that makes our brain big is exactly the same genetics involved with autism and schizophrenia. And they're opposite traits. Um, Autism is an overgrowth. Um, Schizophrenia is a skimpy network, falls apart in in late adolescence. And then you have a hard time telling what's thought from what's actually happening in the world. You're mixing up imagination with reality. In terms of your legacy, is is the mention of autism important to you or is the work you've done with cattle more important? Actually, right now, some other thing I'm really I'm working on a new book on visual thinking. Uh, visual thinkers are really getting left out of our educational system. And right now, my big priority now with COVID, all my trips have been canceled since March. 
I want to emphasize the importance of visual thinkers. And they're getting screened out of our educational system. And algebra is a big gatekeeper. Uh, the way they teach math now is totally incomprehensible to me. I know how to do my old sixth grade math the way it was taught in the 50s. And that you need for skilled trade. I don't need anything more than that. But I do need the old-fashioned up through sixth grade the way they used to teach it. And I looked at some books on Amazon on some skilled trade stuff. They use the 1950s style. <laughs> and the book was not copyrighted 1950. Do you like teaching? Yeah, I find I actually do like teaching. And I don't think teaching gets as much credit as it should. Uh, going online, um, well, I did one lecture online. That was terrible. Uh, one thing I learned is the only way to do it is to put the um, uh, lectures online, you know, pre-recorded. And then take the class period and turn it into discussion. And then I discovered that's called the flipped classroom. Well, I figured out to do that before I even learned it had a name. And then you got those discussion boards. And they're a lot of work to do them right. And I spent anywhere from 20 minutes a night to an hour and a half a night, almost every single night between weekends on those discussion boards. And then I've talked to students at really horrible online classes where there's no discussion really on the discussion boards. Just listen to canned lectures, but a good online class is more work than an in-person class, probably at least twice as much work. Do you think online learning is better or worse for students with disabilities? Uh, it depends on what you're teaching. Our labs online are a disaster. Okay, we got Cattle Repro Lab. Well, that doesn't work online. Um, lectures online. So what we've done in our university, and we managed to keep it open most of the time, is our labs are in person. Our freshman class is in a gigantic engineering classroom, all spaced out, so that that one class is in person. Every All the other lectures are online, and we managed to keep almost all our labs online, and that's really important. Do you think professors need more training and teaching? Well, the th problem, the basic problem we've got in, in education right now is that in a lot of universities, a professor is more rewarded for research and bringing in grant money than for teaching. Teaching doesn't get as much credit as it ought to get. And I, I think teaching is really super important in developing students um, and helping students to get out there and be, be successful. I put a lot of work into my online class. And I'm not going to say it was the best one, but I know it was definitely not the worst one because I heard all about some of the worst ones. I remember one time her explaining me in the San Francisco airport the theory of relativity, you know. I mean, just... <laughs> I was absolutely in shock. I was looking at, at all the people going by and Temple's just getting right into it and, and t explaining all these things. I always, that, that is the memorable occasion. I was sort of dumbstruck. Our parents don't seem, the parents of today, and I'm a parent of today, so I'm doing my best not to, not to redo this problem. It seems like they don't want their kids to struggle too much. Right. Well, the problem is, is, is it needs to be, you learn from mistakes, then you learn how to do it properly. And it's just a piece of printer paper. Of course, in my generation, it was a piece of typing paper, pretty much the same paper. You just called it different machine was, you know, it prints on now today. There's a very interesting experiment that was done by Kelly Lambert at the University of Richmond in Virginia. And uh, it was about resilience. And she did it with rats. And it shows a very, very basic thing. And there were two groups of rats living in a group, big group pen. 
And one group of rats uh, gets their Fruit Loop treats. It's a really bad for you, sugar cereal. Rats love it. So they just chuck the uh, Fruit Loops on the floor and let them just eat them up. But then these other rats, she buried the Fruit Loops in piles of sawdust. The rats had to dig for them. They had to dig and find their treats. Then, after they'd lived this way for a few weeks or so, months, um, then she presented them with an impossible puzzle, a Fruit Loop inside of a container that they could not open. And she timed how long did the rats keep trying. The ones that had dug for their traits um, spent more time trying to do the impossible one. The other thing that's interesting is the ones that had to dig for the treats were less stressed when they measured stress hormones. Now, what the OTs call that is just the right amount of challenge. You know, the Fruit Loops were under sawdust. They weren't under steel. But it's something, there's such a thing as making something too easy and then making them work for it. But work for it where, I mean, the rats get the Fruit Loops, but they had to do some digging to find them. What's your favorite food? Well, I really like dark chocolate. I like raspberries. Um, Those are things I really like. I like steak. Yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> I was I was hoping you were gonna say that first. Yeah. But um, steak, burgers. You know, <laughs> one of the things that I had read. I don't know if it was one of your books or where, but you were saying that you weren't that religious, or you take more of a scientific approach to religion. Well, I talk about that. If you want to read about that, I'd recommend just reading the Thinking in Pictures because that's all in there. When you kept saying, and I was just more curious about this, and I don't know how accurate it was, but you were asking the question of, do you know where they go? So when you were saying, do you know where they go? Was that on a more the cosmic level or was it on a spiritual level? Was it trying to understand life and death? And do you have any more thoughts on what happens? Well, I just figure that let's worry about doing things that are good here. I think she's a pioneer. Absolutely, I'd use the word pioneer. Again, I would use the word that I believe that she has great, great personal courage and wasn't afraid to delve into anything. Uh, Physically, she had courage, but she has moral and ethical courage. And she wants to help other people. And she has that scientific curiosity that is so wonderful if you have it. And that when she doesn't understand something and feels it can be understood with, with work and effort and research, She's the one in there all night figuring it out. I don't doubt that the work that she's done that I am no doubt very unaware of because she's not a braggart at all. And I have not seen her that much since she went on to Illinois and then to Colorado, which has been many, many years now. But but, uh, I think she would definitely be remembered not only by the wonderful things she did for livestock because she did a lot for them, to, so that they would not be abused, they'd be handled properly. There's no cruelty. That was always emphasized to my men. So I think that the, the temple has done a hell of a lot for people, humans, and, and especially kids, I think. She's just been a contributing American and world citizen. I, I, I have all the respect and admiration in the world for her. I used to look for all these uh, secret meanings of life. I don't do that anymore. Huh. I figure if somebody sends me an email and they say that um, their kid went to college because of my lecture book, all right, that's doing something that's a positive contribution. 
And and uh, right now um, I'm getting really into the stuff about visual thinking because I don't want to see the people like me screened out of jobs and I'm just addicted to video games and things like that. I want to see them getting out and having a good life and get out and be successful. A special thanks to Dr. Temple Grandin for taking the time to chat with me today. To hear this podcast and other amazing conversations with people redefining disability, don't forget to subscribe to Taking Flight wherever you get your podcasts. For some fun bonus material and some other goodies, head to perilarock.com. This podcast was produced by Auto Vita, sound engineering by Sean Henninger and Greg Williams. Theme music by my buddy, Andrew Parker Ringa. Check out more of his music at aprmusic.com. Today's show also features music from film score composer Sean Henninger from the band Memory, spelled with two Y's. For more of his music, visit memorymusic.com or neonmoonstudios.com. And thanks to our sponsors, Mansfield Hall, a residential college support program for students on the autism spectrum in Vermont, Wisconsin, and Oregon, and Virtual Hall, providing virtual academic and social support for students attending college across the world. I'm Perry LaRock. See you next time.